Transforming Lives Together podcast, a ministry of St. Bartholomew's Anglican Church in Tonawanda, New York. This is episode one of the podcast, and we will begin with a study titled Life's Meaning and Purpose, an in-depth study of the Gospel of John, taught by the rector of St. Bartholomew's, Father Arthur Ward. In this episode, Father Ward gives us an introduction to John's Gospel, as well as some background on the writer and why this book is important for us today. We want to thank you for listening, and we pray you are blessed by what you're about to hear as we turn it over now to Father Ward. All right. So, John's Gospel, I've entitled the study Life's Meaning and Purpose because <clears throat> while the Gospel is focused on answering a key question, In answering that key question, it gives us life's meaning and purpose. That's why it's such an important gospel. It's why if someone asked me, Father Ward, if there was one book out of the 66 that you would say you could only give to someone, what book would that, if you're on an island, or if if I just had one book of the Bible, what would be the one book I would give someone? It would be the Gospel of John. Because I believe it is the most powerful of all the books. Now, don't get me wrong. God uses all of his word. And actually, it's appropriate that we have the complete witness from Genesis through Revelation. But John is, I believe, the most um, of all of them, the most significant. And again, that's saying a lot, isn't it? Because all the word is good. I don't even like to make comparisons, but I just want to highlight um, its importance. Now, what's interesting, and I found this out just last year <clears throat> from Father Kramer, who uh, has a, a mission and, and ministry to Muslims, and he said that Muslims are allowed to read the Gospels. I don't know if you know that or not, but they are. Muslims are. So if you ever befriend a Muslim, if you ever meet a Muslim, and if you ever start talking about the faith, encourage them to read the Gospels. I remember when we were out in Chicago a couple of years ago for a clergy gathering, as we were traveling back uh, to the airport, our driver was a Pakistani Muslim. And he and I got, I was in the uh, driver, the front driver's side, and he and I got into a discussion about the faith. Uh, and I said, you know, you're allowed to read the Gospels. And he was like, yeah, I know. And I could tell he never really had. And I, and I just encouraged him to read it. Because could you imagine a Muslim, now see, a lot of Muslims can read the Gospels, um, they're allowed to, but many of them don't. But could you imagine, after you, we study John, you'll see, why, could you imagine if they start to read the Gospel of John and they start to see what Jesus has said about himself and what others are saying about him in light of what he has done? He's more than just a prophet. So I encourage you to keep that in mind if you ever run into to Muslims. Now, the purpose of John's Gospel I need my pointer. Is given in uh, John 20. Oh, you guys are going to just do it? Okay. So I was going to have you look up in your Bible. We'll get in, we'll have you open up the Bibles in a little bit. But the purpose, John tells us why he wrote it. He says, Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these, that is the ones that he's included, have been written. Why? so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, 
the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Now, there is a threefold purpose there. I don't know if you caught it. Now, the first purpose is to answer who Jesus is, right? And John is saying he is the Christ. Remember, Christ is Greek for Messiah, which is the Hebrew, which means anointed one. And so whenever you see the words uh, Messiah and Christ, it is a reference to the man, the person that God said to his people would come in the future to establish the kingdom, to judge uh, the world. And so Jesus, John is saying, is the Christ, and I'm going to show you why. He's also the Son of God. And that title, Son of God, means that Jesus is both man and he is God. That he is a son, born of a virgin, but he's also a son in relation to God the Father. So that's the first purpose of John's Gospel, to answer who Jesus Christ is. Remember in the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you're going to hear this term synoptic. The synoptic Gospels is a reference to the three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, because they use the same source material and they include many of the same miracles and events and teachings and parables and so forth, which are not in John's Gospel. John is, is different. And we're going to find out why in, in a little bit later. But in the Synoptic Gospels, Jesus asks the question, who do men say that I am? Do you remember that? And then he says to the disciples, who do you say that I am? That's the first most important question that we need to answer as human beings. Who is Jesus? So John is saying, I'm writing this to show you who he is. He's the Messiah. He's the Son of God. The second purpose is that you may believe that you would come to faith, that you would trust that Jesus truly is the Christ, the Son of God. And as a result of you trusting in Jesus, you will have life. And this life that John talks about, that actually Jesus spoke about, is not just eternal life. It's also abundant life. It's always having perpetual life and a life of blessing. That is the result of being in relationship with Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God, who is the Messiah. So that is the second purpose of John's gospel. Now, before we get to the third purpose, I want you to see something. Do you see the underlined word believing? Believing. That is the English translation of the Greek word pisteo, which means belief. And it's used 98 times in the Gospel of John. It's the uh, word that is used the most in the Gospel of any major word, of any major word, belief, right? So it's very important. But that word that we translate as believing can be either translated in the present, referring to you're already believing, and so this book was written to encourage you to keep believing in your walks of faith with Jesus. So that would be directed to people who are already born again, to people who are already Christian. But that word also can be translated in the aorist tense, that is kind of a past tense, that having believed, you may have life in his name. 
And so this would be like a question scholars would wrestle with. We don't really know. Is the emphasis having believed or is the emphasis believing? And I believe that it refers to two because it's not just written for those who are already Christians, for those who might be struggling with doubt, for those who want to go more into the faith. It isn't just written for Christians. It's also written for the non-believer. So John's audience was to Gentile pagans. And so he is saying that if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you also will have life. So we can read that, that, that believing, you may have life in his name, that as you go forward in the faith, you're going to have this life. But also, once you come to faith, you're going to have this life. And we know as believers that the life of faith is both and. That the same way you are born again is through repent. The, the way you're born again is what, right? Repentance and faith. That's the same way you grow. We have to do it each and every day. Not that we uh, lose our salvation, but that growth occurs by the same principles that we came to faith in the first place, right? Turning from sin, humility, submitting to the Lord, saying yes to God, not thinking you can do it on your own. So, Two purposes. A, who is Jesus? That he is the son of God. B, that if you trust in him and believe in him, you're going to have life, abundant life and eternal life. But the third is to show us what believing actually means. And so that is why whenever we see the word pisteo, belief, that isn't just a mere intellectual belief, because throughout John's gospel, he gives examples of what that belief looks like. And you'll see a bunch in the next slide. To stay out, to believe, 98 times in the gospel. Okay, stop right there. So, belief involves receiving Jesus. Belief involves following. Jesus used the metaphor of drinking water. So, we're doing something in response to our putting our faith in Jesus. Next. We're by responding saying yes. By eating, Jesus says, unless you eat my flesh, right? And drink my blood. So every time we take of the Eucharist, that is a tangible outward sign of our faith. When I come up to the altar and I I bend the knee and eat of Jesus's flesh, that is an example of my belief. And then, of course, accepting, and then three more. Worship. If I believe, I'm going to worship. If I believe, I'm going to obey. And if I believe, there's going to be commitment. So as we study John, we're going to see these in their detail. But the point is that belief is more than just an intellectual assent. Belief is faith, and that faith is going to be demonstrated in tangible actions. And I just gave you nine that are found in John's gospel. Now, of course, two of the most famous verses in John's gospel, and they highlight the purpose for why John wrote the gospel, would be John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, so that whoever believes, I'm sorry, believes in him, not believers, should not perish, but have eternal life. I don't know how that R got in there. But anyway, um, so we all know that, but you see the emphasis on belief. But notice that God so loved. The message of John's gospel, the message of Jesus, is that God loves us so much that he doesn't want us to be lost. He doesn't want us to perish. He doesn't want us to suffer. He doesn't want us to come out of judgment. The whole motivation 
for Jesus' coming is God's love. Uh, and then Jesus said, I came that you may have life, or they may have life, and have it abundantly. Now, what I did not include was the first part of that verse. Actually, before, in, in John ten nine, he says, I'm the gate, I'm the door, and the sheep come into the, the gate, and they find pasture. And he says, those are going to have life and have it abundantly. Because he says the thief comes only to what? Lie, kill, and destroy. But I came the day the sheep may have life and have it abundantly. The sheep who have gone through the door, who have gone through the gate. Not just anybody. And so Jesus is not here just to give us eternal life. Jesus is not here just to show us what love's all about. Jesus is to give us abundant life, a blessed life, a life that is full of meaning and purpose. Now, who is John? While John is never mentioned by name in the gospel, there is a phrase that is used by the author, and that is the disciple whom Jesus loved. Now you say, well, wait a minute. I thought all the disciples were loved by Jesus. Yes, but John uses this term to highlight that he is part of the inner circle. Now, when we talk about the inner circle of the 12 apostles, who are we talking about? We're talking about Peter, and then we're talking about James and John, the sons of Zebedee, the brothers, James and John. And so we know that this disciple is one of the inner circles because throughout there's five times where he mentions the disciple whom Jesus loved. Next slide, please. And those five times are during intimate times with the other disciples. And then he writes at the end of the gospel, he talks about after Peter is affirmed by Jesus, remember, Three times. Do you love me, Peter? Feed my sheep. Right? Jesus is reinstating Peter. Jesus is giving Peter his commission. And we read that the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. The one who also had leaned back on his bosom at the supper and said, Lord, who is the one who betrays you? So Peter, seeing him, said to Jesus, Lord, and what about this man? Jesus said to him, if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Therefore, this saying went out among the brethren that the disciple would not die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he would not die, but only if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who is testifying to these things and wrote these things, and we know that his testimony is true. So do you see that? The disciple whom Jesus loved, who was following them, who was there at the Last Supper, who leaned on Jesus' breast, is the disciple who wrote this gospel. And we know it has to be John. Why? Because Peter is referred to in the third person. See that right here in the passage. James, John's brother, was killed by Herod Agrippa I in Acts chapter 12, verse 2, which was in the early 40s AD. And so James was dead by the time this gospel was put together. So obviously it has to be John. And it's why the early church fathers, all of them, uh, uh, attributed the Gospel of John to John. Now, none of the Gospels actually had the author's names as part of the Gospel, so that's not unusual. Matthew doesn't say the Gospel, it says the Gospel according to Matthew, but it doesn't say in the body that uh, Matthew uh, wrote it. Um, and so the interesting thing about John's Gospel, though, is John's Gospel will find is very personal. He talks about he, as he uh, unpacks things as if he's right there, an intimate knowledge of what Jesus is doing with the fellow 
uh, disciples. Whereas Luke was a convert of Paul and John Mark a convert of Paul. And they uh, uh, got the sources and the various material from the apostles and then they put it into, into written form. But, and Matthew was an apostle, but he wasn't part of the inner circle. And so that's why John's gospel is unique. John's gospel has uh, situations that the other three do not. John's gospel is the only one that gives us the final teaching that Jesus shared uh, with his disciples on the night before he died during the last meal that he had with them. And he ate the Passover meal actually sooner than the actual time because uh, of his death the next day. And he he wanted, and, and so we'll get into that later as we unpack John. But the point of the matter is the apostle John wrote John's gospel. Irenaeus of the Bishop of Lyons wrote this, in 180 A.D. John, the disciple of the Lord, who also leaned upon his breast, had himself published a gospel during his residence in Ephesus of Asia. And then uh, we don't have time to look at the other church fathers, but the tradition is that John wrote the gospel bearing his name in Ephesus in Asia Minor, which is today modern-day Turkey. And remember, it was from Ephesus that John was later exiled to the island of Patmos, where he wrote the book of Revelation. And actually he wrote what Jesus revealed to him. He did not put that together on his own. Now, it's interesting when we look at Mark, I have a bunch of information that I'm sure many of you are not aware of. Uh, And uh, let's look at some highlights from scriptures. It's taken right from my notes here. But this is fascinating. John's mother seems to have been Salome who may have been a sister of Mary, the mother of Jesus, which would mean that John was Jesus's cousin. Because if you look at those three uh, uh, verses, they all pertain to the women who were uh, either at the cross or at the uh, tomb. And so you can deduce from those three uh, that um, uh, John uh, was the son of Salome and Salome was quite possibly the sister of Mary. So that also kind of shows why when Jesus was on the cross, remember he looks down at John, who is described as the disciple whom Jesus loved in John's gospel, and he says, son, your mother, um, or does he say brother? Brother, your mother, mother, your son. I forgot the exact words. You can maybe help me out, uh, Father Tebow. Remember that? He says, um, the last words on the cross. Um, maybe you guys should just look it up. Let's look it up. John 19. I I forgot if he said, I think he said son, not brother. Okay, verse 26, when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. From that hour, the disciple took her into his own household. So if Jesus and John were cousins, that makes all the more sense that Jesus is basically saying to his cousin, his first cousin, take care of my mom. And um, so anyway, Okay, uh, he was a businessman of some means, being one of five partners in a fishing business that actually employed hired servants. Next. Besides his fishing business in Capernaum, John had a house in Jerusalem, 
and was a personal acquaintance of the high priest. I want you to look now at John 18, since we were right there in John 19. Look at this one. John 18, 15, and 16, page 1082. Simon Peter was following Jesus, and so was another disciple. Now that disciple was known to the high priest and entered with Jesus into the court of the high priest. But Peter was standing at the door outside. So the other disciple who was known to the high priest went out and spoke to the doorkeeper and brought Peter in. It's interesting, John always names all the disciples that are involved except for when he talks about himself. It's either he talks about himself as just a disciple or the disciple whom Jesus loved. Uh, Next He was a disciple of John the Baptist. We find that from John chapter 1. And because of John the Baptist's affirmation of Jesus as the Messiah, he immediately became a disciple of Jesus. One of the first five and returned with Jesus to Galilee. He went back to his fishing business and later, maybe a year or so, uh, Jesus called him to leave his business and travel with him as part of Jesus' inner circle of the apostles. So remember, there's a, a, a time gap from in John to where in Matthew Mark, they immediately leave their nets and follow Jesus. So it suggests that there was an initial acquaintance and getting to know Jesus in that capacity. But if he was cousins of Jesus, he would have already known Jesus. Um, So again, it's that development of faith. Is Jesus really the Messiah? And then there comes a point, though, where John leaves everything and says, okay, now is time. It's kind of like our own spiritual walks. For some of us, we don't maybe remember a time. But for many others, it was gradual. Or there just came a point where we realized, okay, enough's enough. We're no longer going to sit on the fence. We're all in. And that's, of course, what happened to John and Peter and James and the rest. The next. Jesus, if you remember, nicknamed him and his brother James the Sons of Thunder. So he probably had a temper. Recall he told Jesus to forbid a stranger to use the name of Christ in casting out demons. And he asked Jesus to call down fire upon the Samaritans. So he probably did have a bit of a temper. And remember, it was John and James who argued amongst themselves as to who is the greatest. Next. While John seems to have lived for many years in Jerusalem, he eventually moved to Ephesus in Asia Minor, probably after the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, where he spent his later years. It was in Ephesus, a cosmopolitan city in what is today the nation of Turkey, that he most likely completed his gospel the three epistles in the New Testament that bear his name, and later the book of Revelation when he was exiled to the island of Patmos off the coast of Asia Minor. Now here's a map of uh, Judea, Samaria, Galilee, the Decapolis, Perea. Hopefully you can see it. Uh, I don't have my pointer, but if you see towards the bottom, you'll see the Dead Sea. There you go. And then... um, Qumran, you see Qumran, uh, many believe that uh, John the Baptist was um, influenced by the Essenes. Now remember, I didn't say John the Apostle, John the Baptist. The Essenes were a, uh, an ascetic sect of Jews like monks that um, uh, kind of were apart from the rest of society uh, and really focused on studying the scriptures and prayer and all of that. Now, to the left, that would be to the west, is Jerusalem. And it's interesting, but John's gospel spends a lot of time in Jerusalem and what Jesus uh, was doing in Jerusalem. And yet, at the same time, let's go up now to the Sea of Galilee up north. There are a number of events 
that are recorded in John's gospel that take place around the Sea of Galilee. One of the most notable being the feeding of the 5,000. The feeding of the 5,000, that miracle is the only miracle that is found in all four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It is kind of the high water mark of Jesus' ministry. Because after that, then the, it kind of goes down in the sense that Jesus is confronted more fully with, uh, uh, by the authorities and then they make plans, especially after he raises Lazarus from the dead, to have him arrested and killed. Now you'll see that Samaria, in order to get to Jerusalem, one often would have to cross into Samaria. And we know that uh, near Mount Gerizim, you see Mount Gerizim, it's right up there in the middle, kind of. Gerizim right there, yeah. That's where, and Sakar, that's where the woman uh, at the well, the Samaritan woman at the well was. So Jesus obviously was, uh, you know, putting on some mileage there, going up and down. Uh, and then, of course, you can see the surrounding regions of Perea and Decapolis. Um, note Bethsaida up there. That's where the feeding of the 5,000 uh, is said to have uh, is taken place. And then Capernaum, another place that Jesus spent quite a bit of time at, um, right there. So that just kind of gives you another reacquainting with the, uh, with the land. Okay, uh, the next slide, please. Now, before we look at the seven signs, there's a couple other things I want us to, uh, hi, uh, to uh, talk about. And that is the date and the audience. This is really important that you see at the bottom of page two. Most scholars today believe that John was written towards the tail end of the first century, 85 to 90 AD, when John was up in age. But that does not mean that he actually... He might have finished it then, but there's a good chance that he even, there's nothing to preclude the possibility that he wrote before 70 AD. The reason why one could contend that is that the way he writes the gospel, he, he writes not only as an eyewitness, but he gives descriptions about certain um, uh, sites in the city of Jerusalem as one who knows the city inside and out. Uh, he does not talk at all about the destruction of Jerusalem. That's totally missing from the gospel. And remember, Jerusalem was not destroyed until 70 AD, and it was completely razed to the ground by the Romans. And so um, there's no reason to think that he couldn't have written it earlier. Another, some would say that one of the reasons why he didn't put his name on it right away was, or it wasn't, he never put it, it was kind of disguised, the disciple whom Jesus loved was if it was put together during persecution and circulated during persecution, you wouldn't want that name to be out there. Uh, so that's another uh, uh, way to think about it. But it's interesting, in the early 1800s, uh, there was a school, uh, the tube, uh, the tube uh, again, school of higher criticism, and they really tried to totally tear the scriptures apart. And they contended that John was written, had to have been written in about 150 almost 200 A.D., by a, uh, a Christian leader to try to articulate ideas about Jesus and his divinity that had developed over time. And they said there's no way that it was written by a first century Jew. Well, that whole theory was debunked 100 years later, back in 1935, when a guy by the name of C.H. Roberts discovered a fragment of John's Gospel the fragment dealt with Jesus and his 
discussion uh, or his um, conversation with Pontius Pilate. And that fragment has been dated as um, the latest, it could be, is 135 AD. So what does that mean if you're an archaeologist? What does that mean when you're trying to figure out the timing of manuscripts? What it means is that John had to have been written several decades earlier. Because if you find a fragment of something, that's not the original. That's something that means it's been circulated. It's been out and about. And as you might imagine, it would take time for a document that's handwritten, that is sacred or a manuscript, to start to get all over the place. And then they have many copies where you'd be able to find these fragments. So now uh, scholars will say that the latest that John could possibly have written is 100 AD, which is still within uh, you know, a generation of those who uh, knew Jesus. Uh, in fact, if John lived to a ripe old age, as what we read earlier would suggest, Peter was going to be martyred, uh, Jesus said, but John was not, um, then it would highlight that the date uh, was, again, in the first century. Now, in terms of his audience, uh, most uh, believe that it was directed to Gentiles because of the way he describes the Jewish feasts and customs and things that are particular to the Jews. He gives those explanations, so that means he's writing to Gentile believers and Gentiles who he's trying to bring to Christ. He also wrote the gospel as a defense for the faith, because during that time, from about 70 AD into the 90s AD, the heresy of Gnosticism, which took on various forms, was starting to take root in, in the church even, where people were either emphasizing the humanity of Jesus to the detriment of his divinity, or they were highlighting Jesus being a spirit being who never really was in the flesh, just appeared to be in the flesh. And so John's gospel is a way to say, no, this is who Jesus is and why. It's a way to refute the heresies, which, by the way, are still with us today. Because every religion and every cult makes the mistake of either treating Jesus merely as a great prophet or man, a spirit being like a god, uh, or just one of many ways to salvation. No one treats Jesus as fully God, eternal without a beginning, and at the same time distinct from the Father and the Holy Spirit. That's what makes the Christian faith unique. That's what distinguishes the Christian faith from the cults and from all world religions. And John's gospel articulates it perfectly. to the Transforming Lives Together podcast, a ministry of St. Bartholomew's Anglican Church, Tonawanda, New York. For more information about the church, including a list of our service times, please visit our website at www.stbartston.org. Again, that's www.stbartston.org. If you're enjoying this podcast, please leave us a five-star rating or a positive review. Both will help in reaching more people with this podcast. If you're on Facebook, please check out our page at facebook.com slash tltpodcast and give us a like. We hope you will tune in next time as we continue with Life's Meaning and Purpose, an in-depth study of the Gospel of John. Until then, we leave you with these verses from John's first letter. 
And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God, and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us, by the Spirit whom he has given us. God bless.